0: Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Treseda, and I'm here on behalf of Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group, and it's great to co-host and to have as guest my
1: colleague and friend, Peter Bagshaw, GP and Somerset CCG Clinical Lead for Mental Health.
0: And today we're talking about chronic pain, changing approaches, and what's new. So Peter,
1: chronic pain, what is chronic pain to start with? OK, so first of all, in terms of definition, a, a lot of patients I see say, oh, this pain is chronic, doctor, meaning it's bad. Now, that's not what chronic means, of course. It means going on for a long time. So it's persistent pain. It's, it's not the acute pain that you get when you hit yourself or damage yourself. It's pain that continues over sometimes days, months or even years occasionally, unfortunately. And it doesn't seem to respond Our traditional ways of dealing with pain. So Peter, you mentioned acute pain. What does acute pain mean? Because people often think acute means very severe. And again, yes, acute and chronic, it's not to do with severity, it's about the length of time that it goes on for. So acute pain is pain that happens usually as a result of an injury or something like that, but it's over in a fairly short time. So if I if
0: I If I'm using a hammer and I hammer my thumb or I get a splinter in my finger or I I break a bone, I'll get an acute pain, which may be quite severe. And
1: with luck, it should settle in time. Absolutely. And if it doesn't, it's the sort of thing that responds very, very well to our traditional analgesic ladder. So um, paracetamol, always the the first choice when it comes to painkillers. And then you can move up towards morphine and Maybe you want to talk a little bit more about the advantages and disadvantages of that. But that works very well for that sort of thing, toothache, that kind of pain. It doesn't work for the the sort of ongoing pain that a lot of us suffer.
0: So just thinking about the pain ladder for acute pain, we start with paracetamol um, and possibly hot compresses or cold compresses or whatever we're advised to use for a a local area. Um, We move to ibuprofen, uh, the non-steroidals,
1: and and then are there weaker opiates and then stronger opiates? Well, that's a really interesting question. There are, and traditionally we've gone from codeine at the weakest up to morphine or diamorphine at the strongest. But in fact, all the weaker opiates are just converted into morphine in the bloodstream. So in fact, when you're taking codeine, you're effectively taking a very small dose of morphine. anti-inflammatories that you talked about, they kind of sit slightly to the side of this. They're, as the name implies, good for inflammation, but they do have lots of problems in terms of uh, gastric upset and occasionally even ulcers and bleeding. So they have their own set of problems. Thank
0: you, Peter. And it's not just painkillers that are important. If I can just can I share a story about when I was on a boat as a junior doctor? So it was a it was a boat with 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 40 or 50 people on it. And it was a sail training ship. And we were off the west coast of Scotland. And a a lady in her 50s fell over and she sustained a collie's fracture. She broke her arm and the ship was tossing about um, because it was quite, quite windy. And although we lay her down comfortably um, and sat her comfortably with a sling, the movement of the ship was such that she was in constant discomfort, even though we gave her painkillers. Um, we, we put into Campbelltown on Argyle and uh, I t- being the doctor, I was de- deputed to take her up to the hospital. I took her up to the hospital and said, oh, Sister, can we have a can we have an x-ray and, a, and 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 the doctor to see her? And he said, she said, well, the doctor's on call and he's a few miles away, and the x-ray doesn't come into tomorrow morning. Would you like to speak to the doctor? So I spoke to the doctor and he said, Well, have you done casualty recently? He said, I said, yes, of course. He said, Well, what you what you do is you put it in a back slab and then you um, then we'll x-ray it for you tomorrow morning. And really interestingly, I put the back slab on, and the moment the plaster was starting to set, the pain was Absolutely abolished. So immobilization for fractures, and I know we sort of are taught about that at medical school, that that's what you do with a fracture to help it heal. It actually abolishes the pain that is caused by
1: the movement of bones against each other when it's a fairly simple fracture. And of course, that makes sense. We often talk about the evolutionary reasons why things happen. But of course, if if you break something or injure something, it's very important that you rest it. In order for it to heal up so it makes perfect sense that if we've broken a bone we have to immobilize it even in the days before we could go to casualty absolutely and can i can i share one other story about various
0: pains i don't know why but in in my practice i was taught by my patients all sorts of aspects of complementary medicine and one of those was acupuncture now i don't practice and never have a practice acupuncture but acupressure is the pressure of acupressure points on the ear and um or, or anywhere on the body, and they, that can, interestingly, very often abolish pain. And so, doing doing casualty, um, very often one sees some people who are highly sensitive to pain, and you always X ray them. And I'm thinking of a of a cohort, and very often teenage girls have pain that's disproportionate to the injury and this is nothing wimpy about them it's just the way their bodies are working and very often acupressure either locally or either side of the injury or elsewhere would help but when I was in prison or sorry 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 listeners when I was working in prison um often people would want to get painkillers to get uh, codeine or to get diazepam because it was uh, it was currency in the prison and so they would come in with various pains and it's always a challenge to sort out the the genuine pains and uh, from from those that aren't so genuine. so I f- was fortunate and I was manipulating necks and backs to a certain extent and also injecting joints which was a common common problem as well but acupressure on the ear often abolished pain that had been there for less than two or three days uh, if you find the right point on the ear and if you're listening and not driving a vehicle or using heavy machinery the earlobe is where you might find the head the back of the ear as you move up towards the top is first of all the neck, and then the shoulder, and then the whole of the arm, and then the whole of the upper ear is a huge representation of the hand because there's a lot of innovation of the hand, and other points are elsewhere on the ear. I really do not ha- know how this works. My pattern would be: this is the other end of a telegraph um, telegraph cable that seems to modulate pain. And if it works for you, it works for you. And if it doesn't, I'm very sorry. I've pressed my lucky matchstick into your ear, and I apologise for the inconvenience
1: it's caused. But really interesting. Some people it works for. I haven't got a clue why. And I guess the point you've raised, whether or not you believe in the, the theory behind acupuncture or acupressure, is that counter-irritation can often reduce pain. And again, you were talking about um, when we hit ourselves with a hammer, well, most of us would swear and rub the part that's been affected. And it's been shown that swearing actually reduces the perception of pain and that rubbing provides counter-irritation in much the same way as, as heat and so salt. And, and that's... That's not all in the mind that's a genuine physical thing that's going on and genuinely physical and going back to the days of of almost
0: of herbalism when I was very first in charge in 1990 I re- I remember visiting an old lady in in the close quite close to the surgery and I said what's in that jar she said nettles I said nettles why have you got nettles in that jar she said I sting my knees when they're painful and this was her She was in her late 80s at that point. This was obviously a traditional way of helping her arthritis. So there's counter-irritation for you.
1: Absolutely. And the other thing to bear in mind is that even for that acute pain, there's always a a psychological element to it. So our brain has the ability to either amplify pain or to diminish it. And there are classic stories, aren't there, of people in war who maybe have arms or legs blown off and, and don't actually experience pain until later. Uh, because the adrenaline is so high that this actually suppresses the feelings of of very, very severe pain. So there's always that psychological element to it. Thank you so much. So pain is actually felt in the brain, although the stimulus may
0: be far away, but it's actually a brain processing of, of those messages.
1: Absolutely. And it's not a passive thing. It's not the messages coming from the organ, going up through to the brain, and then we score it one out of 10. The brain itself is sending messages down which either uh, amplify or suppress that. And you you were probably taught about Melzack and Wall's gate theory at medical school, were you?
0: Please Um, remind me of
1: it. (laughs) So this is the idea, but uh, our brain has the ability to send down messages to the spinal cord that actually can block uh, unwanted pain signals. Uh, And and this, so what our brain is doing, the, the state that we're in, whether we're relaxed or calm, whether we've got other things going on, whether we've got, messages from, from other parts, counter-irritation that we have to take uh, notice of, can affect the way we perceive brain uh, pain. That's really helpful. So we're, we've talked about acute pain and various causes and
0: ways around it, and we're moving more into chronic pain because presumably, Peter, talking about brain messaging, something's going on for chronic pain. I don't say that it shouldn't, but that it's no longer got a useful purpose.
1: Absolutely, and... I was not taught at medical school about dealing with chronic pain. I don't know if you were, Andrew. No. No. Uh, So it's something really that's only come to the fore recently. And it's partly because of problems, unfortunately, with opiates. And as you know, there's an epidemic of of opiate deaths, particularly in America, but now coming to this country. So we've started to realize how even those so-called mild opiates are addictive and dangerous. And it's partly because they just don't work. And I'm sure you've seen patients who have pain that goes on and you move up the analgesic ladder and you try other things as well. And it just doesn't seem to touch them. So we've recently started looking at chronic pain in a different way. I don't know if that's your experience. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. I'm, I've
0: trained with the old school of, of not knowing what chronic pain was and then using the pain ladder. And on the whole, it, the, the sort of the mantra was, if it's not working, then put a bit more on. Um, without realising that opiates stop working after a few weeks and you become tolerant to them and that, that the others may or may not modulate pain, the gabapentins and the, the pregabalins, but they may not be the long-term answer. So what's the approach now that's, that's more important? And what's, what's, the evolving, what's the evolving story about it? Because NICE has produced some guidelines recently, I think.
1: It has, yes. And that's partly recognising that all the current painkillers that we've got have got side effects or are ineffective. And in fact, there was a study done very recently on um, painkillers, back pain, and antidepressants showing that although antidepressants are widely prescribed for chronic back pain, they're actually minimally effective and shouldn't be used. So there's that evolving understanding of what works and what doesn't. So the new idea of chronic pain, and... I was told it in a way that makes sense to me, so I'll I'll recount it and see if it makes sense to you, is the idea that our brain is a little bit like a car alarm, and that if somebody is trying to break into our car, it's really important that we know about it and that we sound the alarm, and we do it as loudly as possible. And this is the equivalent of our brain going, ow, this really hurts. But if that's happened, then it sensitizes the car alarm so that the slightest rock of wind or a cat jumping over the bonnet uh, or anything like that can actually then start to set off the car alarm. And in the same way that once we've had an episode of pain, our brain becomes sensitized to it. It's looking out for it. And so it will send off pain messages even when it's not helpful or appropriate. Now, I don't know if that's a, an analogy that makes sense to you, Andrew. That's really helpful, Peter. And it begs the
0: question, um, what do we then do about it if we've got an oversensitive alarm system that's firing off um, too, too, too effectively or
1: too frequently or too too noisily? And this comes back to, first of all, what we don't do. So the temptation is simply to go for stronger and stronger painkillers And when they don't work, go for other things. And you've mentioned things like pregabalin and gabapentin, which have a place in nerve pain. Uh, For neuropathic pain, nerve pain, they are useful. But for other pains, they're really of, of minimal benefit. So what we need to do is to either provide some sort of counter irritation or to retrain our brain so that it can send messages down that block the pain. There's a very good NHS webpage on this, uh, if people are interested. If they just uh, Google chronic pain and go onto the NHS website, uh, it takes you through this and there's a a, a pain toolkit that you can go through. One of the important things they say is keep active. And I know this is something we've talked about previously, but it looks as though the worst thing you can do uh, if you've got bad pain is just to lie in bed and feel sorry for yourself. Um because actually, that then focuses everything you've got on that pain. So keeping active, moving around is number one. And certainly for back pain, when I first trained, people were put on traction for
0: days or weeks and uh, and told to rest in bed for for a couple of weeks, and that's probably
1: probably the wrong advice we were giving then. Definitely. And I'm afraid uh, history is is littered with medics giving wrong advice, isn't it, unfortunately. But, you know, that's the great thing about science. We learn, we improve, and, and hopefully uh, we, we gradually better advice as time goes on. So the other thing that you can do, you mentioned acute pressure. Um, we talked about relaxation techniques, meditation, and, uh, again, there's a 20-minute guided meditation course on the NHS Choices website. And that really does seem to make a difference for a lot of people. Um, so peter that begs the question what is guided meditation and how does it work for pain so, okay so meditation really is just about retraining your brain and relaxing it focusing on the inner sensations which is odd because you would think that that would actually amplify pain um, and i've I've been on meditation courses and found them useful and it, it it's been shown to change the brain waves it's it's not all psychobabble it it actually has a physical effect and guided meditation is really having somebody taking you through that process of relaxing you focusing you the slowing down of breaths that you you tell us about on most occasions it's that's all part of meditation isn't it and very similar to hypnotherapy it it seems to have a very similar effect
0: and Thank you. And would that involve particular things within that meditation of, of inviting you to notice the pain and notice whether it changes or notice whether it melts, or, or is, is, that,
1: is am I moving into Andrew's psychobabble? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, generally, it's about making your brain more relaxed. And it's been shown that if we are more relaxed, then we perceive pain less. And I think all of us have experienced that if we're anxious – Uh, then pain seems much, much worse. So it's mainly about those things of slowing your breathing down, focusing inside, stopping your brain, whizzing around at 100 miles an hour, thinking of all different things. And if you do have those intrusive thoughts, letting them drift in and drift out. But that would apply to the pain signals as well. So a lot of us, when we feel pain, we also get a lot of anxiety. So if we have a headache, we might think, Maybe I've got a brain tumor, or maybe I'm going to have a stroke, or is, is my blood pressure too high? And actually, often, it's just a pain. And as somebody who uh, has migraines, uh, the first time I had it, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going blind because I thought saw these flashing lights. So there's an overlay of anxiety on top of the physical symptoms. And if you can strip away that overlay, then the underlying symptoms become more manageable. Does that make sense? Or am I, am I going into people's head level now?
0: That's extremely helpful. And just thinking about chronic pain, we're sort of saying it as though pain pain is pain is pain. It could be pain in your head. It could be pain in your chest. It could be pain in your tummy. It could be pain in your back or your legs or or in a particular joint. And I would imagine that we also always, when assessing that, have to check that there isn't inflammation or that there isn't a physical cause. Or is it is it a question that we just diagnose chronic pain very
1: quickly? And 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 manage it in that way. Or is it or is it both and? No, both and absolutely. And you and I have been trained in trying to disentangle different types of pain. And if it's a sharp stabbing pain, it might be pleurisy. If it's a central crushing chest pain, it might be your heart. So we we mustn't lose sight of the fact that pain is still a warning that we sometimes need to take notice of. And that if anybody has pain that's that's new that they're worried about. Absolutely, get it checked out by the, the GP because it might be a sign of something serious.
0: And, and just thinking culturally as well, and this is this you know this in a way this is a, a sort of a concern or a warning. I gather that some cultures don't talk about mental health issues; they uh, that is to say, they they make their symptoms into their bodies. So they may present with pain when the issue may actually be
1: anxiety or depression. Is that something that that, um, that, that we should know about? Yes, the, no, that's absolutely right. There are certain cultures that do that. But with our, within uh, the cultures that we're more familiar with, within uh, our culture, then the same thing happens, that some people are somatizers and will experience mental distress as physical pain. And I think of my father, for instance, who in the year after he was bereaved, uh, he had chest pain constantly and went to the doctor and thought he was having a heart attack. And it was, it was not. It was simply due to distress and grief.
0: How very interesting. So there are many more approaches to chronic pain rather
1: than just tablets these days. Absolutely. And not all of us as GPs will have learned these lessons. So my advice to people, if they, if they go to the GP and aren't given advice that, that seems right to them, is to go onto the NHS Choices website that has a, a really clear description of this. And I would stress again, we are not dismissing pain. Pain needs taking seriously and diagnosing. And we're certainly not saying it's all imagined or in the mind. That's really helpful. And I'm glad you've mentioned that last thing because I've got a niggling
0: question because you mentioned soldiers in battle earlier. And I wanted to ask you, what is phantom limb pain and what does one do about it?
1: Okay, that's a very particular pain. so it looks as though what happens is that if you have the nerves severed by, say, having a, a leg blown off or whatever. Or an um, amputation
0: for surgery because yes. the arterial supply had disappeared and it was in jeopardy
1: or, or whatever. Absolutely. So anything that, that has that damage of the nerves, the the endings will still continue to fire off messages. And in some people, they fire off pain messages. And we see this as well, for instance, in people who've had severe sciatica, who then have surgical decompression. So you've taken all the pressure away from the nerve, but a lot of people will continue to experience back pain and sciatica because the nerve has been damaged. The the most famous story, of course, of um, of battle pain and, and so on uh, is Waterloo, where there was a general, I can't remember which one, um, who was on horseback. And a, a cannonball um, shot through his leg and the soldier next to him said, "Gad, sir, your leg's been blown off. And he looked down and said, "Gad, sir, so it has and carried on with the battle. So it's a demonstration of, of how much our brain can affect the way we perceive pain. That's a really interesting um, explanation
0: of it. And I invite you, Peter, and uh, and all of our listeners, I can't do a guided meditation on your pain, but perhaps just for a few moments, as long as you're not driving a vehicle, put your feet flat on the floor. We invite you to put your feet flat on the ground to allow your spine to be comfortable. And using using your abdominal muscles, using your diaphragm, just take three slow, gentle, regular, rhythmic breaths. And this takes us off parasympathetic off sympathetic drive down into parasympathetic, into calm, and whatever we're feeling, it should uh, have different a different brain approach to it now, which allows
1: it to be more settled than uh, than disturbed and and frazzled. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, for anyone who gets benefit from that, similar things are experienced by doing hypnotherapy by doing meditation and all these other techniques. And again, I'd stress it doesn't get rid of the symptoms, but as you say, it allows us to deal with it. There are various apps as well. Headspace is probably the best known, but other apps are available, aren't they? Indeed. Um, is there a particular
0: good app for any guided meditation that's free and available? Is this something that uh, our, our GP would be able to advise us about, or is there is there information on the web that you know about, Peter?
1: Well, Headspace is probably the the most commonly used. Um, some of its uh, applications are behind a paywall, but but most of it is free to use. Um, but there are lots of others available as well. So again. Go to a reputable source. There there are lots of slightly dodgy ones out there as well. Um, But but, uh, again, if you go through the NHS choices, um, Headspace, I think, is probably the one that uh, most people would would use. Lovely. Thank you. I think there's a
0: a new one coming out in September for everybody in Somerset, um, clinically approved app library, which is called Orca, O-R-C-H-A. that's orca with an H in, and not not the uh, wild wild whale killer whale, is it? Yeah. I, like, yeah, I wouldn't like my my leg bitten by an orca. I think that would be a bit painful. Anyway, I think that probably covers chronic
1: pain, Peter. Any last words from yourself on that? Really, only sympathy for people who deal with chronic pain. Uh, I've known people who go on. For years uh, with severe pain, say after shingles or back pain or uh, chronic arthritis. And it's a really hard thing to deal with. And although the sort of things that we talked about can't get rid of those pains, they hopefully will help people to deal with them, cope with them, and be able to, to put it in a box and and get on with the rest of their lives. So I, I hope that's been useful to people and I'd be very interested to get feedback on how people get on trying this different approach to chronic pain.
0: Well we always welcome feedback and uh, that would be much appreciated and Peter you and I are both GPs and we want the best for our patients. There are many times in my career where, where I just wish I'd had a magic wand because I wasn't able to conjure up anything from the therapeutic armamentarium. Um, I don't know that mindfulness and my guided meditation is a magic wand but I don't know if you and I don't know if you've ever had that uh, that feeling yourself that you wished you'd had a magic wand.
1: Well, always, uh, and it's, it's many hundred of years old now, isn't it? But the saying uh, to, to reassure always, to relieve often, to cure occasionally, still applies. Absolutely. So even if we can't get rid of a problem, if we can make it more tolerable and help the person to cope with it, I, I hope we've achieved something. Thank you very much, Peter. And thank you listeners for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.